Hello, and welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Aaron. And I'm Damian. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space, a community for folks who believe in and want to do the work for social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. Uh, Damien, you are up this week, so what do you have for us today? I am. All right, folks. So today, I've brought a piece that was actually featured in The New Yorker back in June, earlier this year, and it's called How a Conservative Activist Invented the Conflict Over Critical Race Theory. Mm. Yeah, loaded, loaded uh, title alone, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was written by a man named Benjamin Wallace Wells, who has actually been writing about American politics for The New Yorker for, uh, I believe, over over 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And this piece is basically all about the efforts of Christopher Rufo, who we've talked about in one of our previous episodes when we first discussed critical race theory here on the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And specifically what Christopher Rufo did to sort of spark this conservative attack on critical race theory that has been happening very publicly over the past year and some change. And so in this piece, we learned about how Christopher Rufo started his career as a documentary filmmaker and journalist, and then In July of last year, he received some documents about anti-bias training sessions that the city of Seattle was requiring of its employees. And from there, he went on to write uh, an article critiquing those articles, excuse me, those trainings and and sort of anti-racist educational efforts. And that article really blew up and, and initiated what is happening now. And so I think this article was really great in terms of illuminating both the intent and the impact of Christopher Rufo's story and his actions as they relate to all of the critiques we see right now about critical race theory, or I should say more accurately, what these folks are calling critical race theory, right? Right. Um, Right. I'll also say that I really appreciated that Benjamin Wallace Wells also spoke to Kimberly Crenshaw to get her reaction and thoughts on all of this as well. And so I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that today. So I think there's just, this is a really great piece. And I think there's a lot of great stuff to talk about um, in it and from it. So where do you want to start? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, this isn't surprising to me at all, right? Yeah. Like we talked about it a few months back. So I almost feel like this is a an extension or expansion of our previous discussion Absolutely. Um, about critical race theory and the, rea- the rights reactionary nonsense. Mm. Um, you know, it's laid out here, um, and it's laid out in another video um, by Christopher uh, Carlos, Ma, uh, yeah, Carlos Maza. My apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, that we'll talk about in a little bit. That we that you know, I also watched um, prior to our discussion today. Um, but it's really just like this propaganda effort, right? Yes. It's taking this legal theory that. Um, really defines the ways that racism has been persistent throughout um, the legal system uh, in the United States throughout the history of it. Um, And then trying to turn that theory and those ideas into a weapon, right? And like using it to Mm -hmm. attach it to sort of white racial resentment and anxieties, um, even though it it, those things aren't necessarily related, right. um, but he found a way to to do that 
um, and turn it into this boogeyman that it is now, um, and then have you know right wing media drive his acceptance into the GOP so he gets to help set legislative agendas in states and co-write um you know bills in states um and and also federally right and yeah. speaking with congress people um Trump's chief of staff called him after his appearance on Tucker Carlson that set off a whole lot of this stuff so his his ability to you know stir up some stuff appear on Tucker Carlson make a claim that this uh this theory is undermining America and is this uh, insidious infection across the United States. Yep. And it's not. Um, and then just get catapulted to the highest levels of government for making like really wild claims that have no real basis for anything. It's just, it's, it's not surprising. Um, and it's also mind boggling how quickly you can just make stuff up and then be taken super seriously, super seriously um, by the current like leaders of the, the Republican party. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I think that was one of the most sort of fascinating parts of this piece, right? Like learning more about sort of like the totality of Christopher Rufo's impact on these misguided attacks on critical yeah. race theory, right? Like, yeah. um, yeah, you're right. Like he literally got to uh, have a conversation with some really powerful and influential people in our government, right? And 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 sort of have this huge impact on legislation. Um, and so I, the totality of his efforts is is wild and sort of a piece that's chronicled in this. And I think as infuriating as they are, I think Benjamin Wallace Wells really gave us a pretty thorough look at the story here, right? Yeah, um, agreed. And so I I. I it's infuriating, but I, I appreciated that. I also think your characterization of of Rufo's efforts and and the efforts of the conservative machine as as mm -hmm. demonizing and weaponizing are, are really spot on, right? And yeah. and that's really easy to see when you hear it in Rufo's own words, right? So you referenced that he was on Tucker Carlson, he's been on Fox News a number of times, right? You know, um, this was back in September of last year. He talked about how conservatives needed to wake up because critical race theory was an existential threat to the country, right? Those were his words. Yeah. And, and that it was being weaponized against core American values. Mm -hmm. And I, I read that because obviously I did not watch that interview, uh, but mm -hmm. I, I read that and I was like, well, I guess my question for you would be like, whose values, whose American values are you talking about? Right? Like, I think, I think he and I would have very different answers uh, to the, to that question. Yeah. Uh, not to mention that he wasn't even actually talking about critical race theory, right? Yeah, yeah. he was not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah, it's astounding because because none of them, none, right? Tucker Carlson has no idea what it is. Not a lick. Um, although, was he the one who went to Harvard oh, Law gosh, School? I don't know. I don't know either. Um, one of these pundits, and it might be him actually, went to Harvard Law School, where critical race theory was started yeah. um so you know he might actually have taken a class in it at some point all right um all right but you know aside from that like nobody is sort of pushing back or challenging or, or helping to establish like what this actually is um and so they're attaching anything and everything they can to it because it sounds now it has been made to sound scary i just um, did a quick google search and uh, according to wikipedia yeah he went to trinity college so 
who went to somebody one of them went to Harvard Law who was okay. has also been uh in in these efforts um so one of the other things I want to talk about is a couple of tweets that Rufo has mm. since deleted right okay um, yeah so he he said he tweeted we have successfully successfully frozen their brand critical race theory into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions we will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that broad category. So that's tweet number one. Yep. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. Yeah. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. Mm. So you can see that this isn't not this is not really about like real concerns, right? Like this is another piece. Uh, it's a manufactured piece of the culture war. Yes. This is a deliberate propagandist attempt to change the narrative, um, right? And it also, if you think about the timing of it, yeah. Mm. When he started doing this, this was a real reaction or a real distraction from the incompetence and um, malpractice terrible things that the trump administration was and was not doing Mm -hmm. um in during the actual covid19 pandemic that was raging across the country in the summer of 2020 which is when all of his stuff started yeah um and then he showed up on tucker carlson i think in august 2020 uh and then uh, a couple weeks later uh Trump signs a, an executive order banning sort of critical race theory um, in any kind of federal, federal. federally funded training. Yes. Um, and it's just a huge distracting distraction technique um, and, and another piece of like, you know, vapid culture wars to stir up white anxieties um, about a country that's changing and... Um, you know, a lot of folks are re-examining what the origins of the country are, and that's not um, cool either, right? As you right. think about like sixteen nineteen and the reaction mm. of that, and um, all these things. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, and it's it's fascinating to sort of recognize these as deleted tweets, right? And there's always, you know, something to say about you know why would a person delete tweets, right? So there's one that's one piece of this to consider. I think it's also interesting to think about sort of the the message behind these tweets, right? And I think that's sort of what you're getting at here, mm-hmm. right? Um, and sort of what is the the true intent behind those those tweets? I think it's it's absolutely a concerted effort to mischaracterize what critical race theory is. Um, and it's clear to me that it's really troubling to see how dangerous that is, right? Like yeah. when you think about the the message that's in those deleted tweets you found and you know, you couple that with the access and influence that he had over folks like Trump and Governor DeSantis and mm-hmm. Senators Cotton and Cruz. Yep. I think it's it's outright dangerous at its core and it's outrageous at its core. Um but it's also really troubling to see how this one man had all of this power and influence over elected officials and legislators and and what those folks did as a result of their conversations with him and, and in listening to him and in reading his 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 articles um, and and I and what those folks, you know. Uh, and what real people did, <laughs> you yeah. know, listening to him as well. Right. And so I, I think when you talk about you just talked about this being like deliberate propaganda to change the narrative about what's really happening. Right. Um, 
that's real, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, for them, it's deliberate propaganda to change and to distract us from what critical race theory actually is and about what anti-racist trainings and educations can actually do. Um, it, yeah, I, I have so much concern about that and it, and it troubles me so. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we already talked about his appearance on Fox News and so that platform, platform alone gave him loads of access to people, right? Yeah. Um, but I was also shocked to read in this piece about his tip line. So <laughs> we, he uh, talked to Benjamin about how he set up this tip line last October for folks to call in and, and share their outrage about the anti-racist programs that were happening in their local communities. And he shared that he had received like some, a few thousand tips on it. And yeah. like for one, that was astonishing to hear. Yeah. Not really, but but a little bit. Um, and we certainly know that some of those tips came from paid actors, right? Like we, we know that, but that certainly I think can account for all of them. And so, you know, and I don't know if this actually happened, but it makes me sick to think about him or it, the, the article mentioned he has an assistant who was helping sort of cull through all of those tips, right? Yep. It sort of makes me sick to think about him or his assistant reaching back out to those folks to sort of fuel or stoke that outrage even more. Yeah, it's a big, um, it's a big outrage machine, right? Yeah. Like, um, and I think that that's, that's a piece of what the, you know, when I talk about on the show, I think last week, right? Like the right wing having so much, um, in, like right wing people like Rufo having so much influence, yes. um, that then connects into like actual policies yeah. um, of the GOP and platform pieces of their platform, like what the the Republicans actually do. Um, this is this the, the sort of constant outrage about stuff um, that is not you know centered on uh, whiteness and, and maleness and cisgendered and like you know Christianity. Um, that's a consistent presence yeah. for them too, and so th this ties into that perfectly in a way that is you know it's the same old same old and it's a sort of finding a new way to fight this culture war on a different slightly different front right right well and the one piece you didn't mention that you you talked about last week and i sort of said it right is also the the rights access to the media right and yeah. the ways in which they weaponize the media right. too plays a role into this too right well and it's you know it's not just that the right is weaponizing the media but also that they have created their own media right mm -hmm. which is then uh you know just propaganda channels and, and yeah. creates right like the um the media is is using the the talking points from like right-wing politicians and vice versa yes um they're sort of sharing notes essentially um yeah and so thinking about this kind of um outrage piece is um there's a piece in the in the interview um, or in the article um, that we read from the New Yorker that, you know, one of the pieces that's in there is this whole idea of rebranding discomfort as humiliation. Yes. Um, and that's such a bizarre concept. It's some of the mm. most like dominant forms of thinking I've, I've heard of recently. Mm. Um, and so the context is that he, uh, Rufo is looking at a screenshot of Lockheed execs who are going through a training on something um, that challenged some notions of whiteness and maleness, right? Yep. Um, and they asked for quotes of like what they hope to get from the session. And so somebody, I guess, in the, through the tip line or however he got hold of this information 
Somebody said that they hope we are evolving the white male culture so future generations won't be stereotyped. Um, and so apparently that phrase is evidence of, of humiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, right. When I, you know, I think about this and you mentioned sort of anti-racist trainings and how much outrage he has trying to, he's ge- trying to generate around these things. Most of the time, I think, you know, the questions that people are asking, like the things that we want, that people want folks to pull apart in their own sort of actions or thoughts or, or worldview is what's the origin of these things. Yes. And, you know, how do they influence what we do on the day to day? Right. Um, and then once you answer those questions, maybe other questions will also appear for you mm-hmm. um, that you also want to answer and, and rethink. Um, but, you know, that's not what they want to do. Like, it, it feels like the outrage is we can't ask those questions at all. Yeah. Right. Like we can't. We can't really dive into what the meaning of these things are that we do without thinking about, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. So I, I, th- I really think it'd be a lot easier to accept that we exist within some really harmful and, and terrible dynamics and systems and that we all need you know, to learn new ways of being than claiming to be humiliated all the time by simple questions asking us what are the origins of our beliefs or... or um, you know, our behaviors. Yeah. Well, and I mean, really the question was, what do you hope just to get out of this session? Right. Like, like, and sort of inviting folks to be open and honest and vulnerable about that. Right. And so this idea of humiliation was what Rufo interpreted from reading some of these quotes, those responses. And I, 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 yeah, I'm really glad that you picked up on that. And, and particularly, I think, it's important for someone like you to sort of say that, to see that, yeah. and to name it, right, as a white man, right, to to sort of see and call out the problems with Rufo's take on what these white executives sort of wrote down as what they hope to get out of these anti-racist trainings. Like, you know, we spent that whole episode talking about notions of white supremacy and white supremacy culture, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what Rufo said here and, and his reaction to this anti-racist training could easily be a case study for that yeah. right mm-hmm. you know um, yeah well i think about it too like the um right like these were executives at lockheed martin yes. right so they're they're making war planes <laughs> like hmm. so you know how how much are we getting into into it with them really like right like this is probably not that deep because ultimately they're part of the war machine yes so that's that like that's another piece of it that i'm like how much of that do we unpack too of like what is the work that you're doing yeah and have you thought about what that means for the world at large yeah because i think if you really if you really sat with that it might question sort of it might make you question some of your decisions about where you work and what you do right but i don't think you know, and we don't have access to what training they actually went through. Uh, but I doubt they went there. Yeah. Uh, I doubt they went yeah. that far. Absolutely. That's great. So, I, yeah, I appreciate that perspective. You know, I, if I can shift us, I also wanted to sort of talk a little bit about what Benjamin Wallace Wells shared from his conversation with Kimberly Crenshaw. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, you know, and we, we, we adore her around here. You know, he reached out to her for her reactions to all of this. And, and there were a couple of things that stood out to me. For one, you know, she flat out said that what Rufo and others 
uh, are talking about and doing in this sort of conservative campaign against critical race theory is most certainly not about critical race theory, you know, what it actually is, right? right? It's it's largely about shutting down any conversations about racism, right? Mm-hmm. And so sort of that is one piece that I wanted to name because I, I think, you know, point blank, we need to name that. Um, but I was also compelled by what she said about how this campaign against critical race theory represented familiar efforts to shift the point of the real argument or issue, right? And and you talked a little about this exact thing a little bit earlier, right? She, But she also said that she felt that this wasn't going away anytime soon. And so I'm going to quote the piece here. She's, it says, Crenshaw was suggesting a deeper historical pattern in which the campaign against critical race theory was not an aberration, but long-lasting retrenchment. And this is quoting her. The fact is there aren't any easily digestible red pills, Crenshaw said. If we're going to, if we're really going to dig our way out of the hole this country was born into, it's going to be a process. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think that's important, right? To me, it speaks to in part an acknowledgement and recognition of where we are as a society and the heavy work we, we still need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was really glad that he contacted her too. Um, and, you know, it also would be interesting to hear from uh, if Derek Bell was still alive, hear uh, from him and yeah. what, what what his reactions to all this uh, are as well, and just sort of hear from more voices um, about that. Um, Absolutely, this sort of outrage. Um, so another another layer of this uh, that I wanted to bring in, I mentioned earlier, Carlos Maza's video. Oh yeah, um, on YouTube. Um, so he called it critical race theory and moral panic, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I like that term moral panic because I think that that's it feels so tied to what we've been talking about with outrage and, yes. and all that stuff. So I really connected with, with that as the title. Um, and he does a really great deep dive into why this is just a bunch of nonsense yep. as we've been talking about here. Um, but he really shows how some of the so-called concerned parents, um, who, who show up on Fox news and other, um, you know, right-wing media stuff are actually just right-wing media operatives um, who are on the payroll for right-wing think tanks like Turning Point or Heritage or um, whatever else. And he also points out how a lot of these organizations are all funded by the Koch brothers. Yeah. Right. So it's ultimately like billionaires funding this, this reactionary nonsense. Um, And so he points all this out um, and and shows how the sort of what appears to be a grassroots thing um, is actually manufactured nonsense. And he describes it as astroturfing, um, which is what mm-hmm. grassroots, um, it's sort of like the the fake version of grassroots, yeah. right? Like astroturfing, right? Yeah. It's fake grass. Um, That's good. And so it's the installation of of people who appear to be part of the community in different places. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's part of what's happening sort of across the country too with these, um, um, school board uh, oh, meetings, like right? meetings that are all over the internet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of astroturfing happening in those. Um, yeah. So he also points to Rufo made a briefing uh, a branding book briefing book, um, something like that. Let's see. He called it a briefing book. Okay. Um, and I just, uh, I tried to print it out. Not, I wasn't actually going to print it out. I wanted to see how long it was. Because ah. um, he holds it up in the video. And I was like, that's a lot. Mm. Um, it's 18 pages. Wow. Um, 
of talking points. And so those talking points have found their way across government uh, and media outlets. So like you mentioned, Ron DeSantis yep. and Tom Cotton yep. and Cruz. Uh, all of them, all three of those men in particular, have used Rufo talking points yeah, from wow. this branding book. Yeah, and well, like you I'm can draw a parallel between yeah. the two. Um, wow. So, you know, they're just parroting out pieces of Rufo's manufactured moral panic, yes. um, which also appears to be their entire strategy heading into 2022 is, you know, culture war, moral panic, um, they they are taking our country right yeah to your point earlier about yeah. whose values and, and what right yeah and that us versus them mentality that I talked about a few weeks ago so Man. yeah this the idea of these midterm elections being important and being critical and uh, being a battle yeah um, that's fascinating yeah uh, yeah Aaron I haven't had a chance to watch the video Aaron just told me about it yesterday and I, I just didn't have time to to check it out yet but that sounds incredible we said it's about an hour long yeah it is about an hour yeah long. yeah so i definitely want to check it out i would encourage folks to check it out what was the name of it again um critical race theory and moral panic by carlos maza m-a-z-a perfect yeah i think it i mean it sounds like it would be sort of a great accompaniment to this piece that we read and and really sort of as you said a deeper dive into into all of this so I absolutely want to check that out. I appreciate you finding it and, and bringing it here. Yeah. All right. Well, let's shift and talk a little bit about application. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously all of this is application, right? Because this right wing conservative attack on critical race theory, uh, quote unquote, is happening right now. Right. And so it's it's in the news almost every single day in cities and towns across the country and in even is national news as well. Right. And so. This is directly applicable to, I think, our collective understanding of why these misguided attacks and, and critiques exist and hopefully can be helpful as we continue to combat them, I think, right? And so yeah. I think that's one piece. And I think from both the perspective of what these critiques are actually about and how we talk about that and also in terms of what we do to continue our collective education and, and, and fight for, for social justice. Yeah, um, agreed. I think that that's all really um, important um, to think about. I really, you know, I've been talking about this, I feel like the whole article, but to be explicit, um, I really like that this article and also Carlos's, Carlos Maza's video um, is really just brilliant insight into how right-wing propagandists incite culture war, yes. right? finding pr provocative pieces of trainings and then making them sound scary uh, because they make people uncomfortable. That's it. right. Yeah. Um, and un discomfort is one of the mortal sins of whiteness. We're not supposed to feel uh, uncomfortable. We're supposed to be psychologically comfortable at all times and safe yeah. and safe and not have to confront the real, the real results of white supremacist, capitalist, imperialist patriarchy, which, you know, to a certain extent, these, trainings are trying to highlight the experiences of people who are not um, held up as you know dominant figures um, or privileged figures identities in uh, these systems um, and so yeah that that discomfort then um, becomes something to point at as they're trying to right like incite this moral panic or outrage or or how whatever tack you want to take with it. Absolutely. I think that's yeah. great. I, you know, as you were talking, I was sort of reminded of another piece of application 
of all of this that came to me when Kimberly Crenshaw was talking in this and, and sort of talking to Benjamin uh, about she was sort of naming so much of this as George Floyd backlash. Yeah. And I and I can't help but think about how we are still in this moment in our country, right? Mm-hmm. So right now we, we have the trial going on for the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, and uh, he has been acquitted, right, mm-hmm. um, on all charges, right? And so it's fascinating and, and infuriating to have these trials going on at the same time, right? And to hear the rhetoric surrounding them, right? And the so the idea uh, about what these conservative and right-wing folks are actually criti- critiquing continues to have real impact and consequences on the lives of real people, right? And sort of the, sort of, uh, you know, I hate this term, kind of sort of, but like the soul of our country in a way, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is... Um these things are all tied together in in a variety of ways and um you know one of the things we didn't talk about at the beginning that happens at the beginning of this article is how much the pandemic has probably been able to play into this yes um because mm-hmm. you know we're sitting at home on these trainings now um for the mo- for a lot of folks are yes. right if you're if you're going through one of these trainings you're you're sitting at home um and so you can take a screenshot yeah um or you know, take a photo on your phone or something. Um, and so there, it's easier to secretly share something that makes you feel uncomfortable um, than it is when you're having that thing in person. Absolutely. Um, and so that that's another element to it as well that is also tied into, I think, the George Floyd backlash, particularly when you look at when he started to, to you know, appear last summer in the 20, in the summer of 2020, um, and started to do a lot of this work is like part of that George Floyd backlash. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, very good. All right. Well, let's move on to homework. You know, I, to be honest, I'm really interested to hear what you've come up with here because <laughs> I I struggled. I'm a little stuck, right? Because yeah. I think I'm just a bit sick and tired of this attack on, you know, quote unquote critical race theory that isn't really about critical race theory at all. Right. And and we've talked about that today. We've talked about that in our previous episodes. Right. And, and this, this article sort of illuminated that and, you know, and, and, and quite frankly, I don't like the attacks on anti-racist education either for obvious reasons. Right. Um, and, and particularly as, you know, we're, uh, I think the, the, I don't quite yet have the words to describe the way I feel about the 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 Kyle Rittenhouse um, sort of outcome of that, right? Yeah. And I, so I think that's a little raw. So I, I, I'm I'm struggling here a, a little bit, right, to come mm-hmm. up with homework as a result of all of that, right? I will say that I did enjoy this piece, right, and particularly uh, Benjamin Wallace Wells. I think his writing style is really great, right? So I'm interested. Yeah. I'm sort of just interested to read a little bit more of his stuff from the New Yorker. Um, and he's, I mean, again, he's written there for over 10 years. So, um, he's got a lot of, he got a lot of stuff there. So I'm, 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 I want to do that, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear what did you come up with as homework? Cause I, I, I struggled. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot to struggle with here. Um, and so, um, you know, thank you for naming that struggle. Cause I think it's important to, to be in that struggle, yeah. um, together. So, um, I think, so as I think about what we've talked about today, right? Like my theme, my application was about, the right wing outrage machine, right? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, my homework is how do we counteract it? Mm-hmm. Um, 
what does it mean to try to oppose this publicly and and shift the narrative back to um, a place that is uh, not entirely on their ground, right? Because yeah. that's right now to talk about CRT in public and, and like a mainstream media place, it it's all defined by essentially what Rufo has put out, right? Or what Fox News has talked about. Yes. Um, and so, you know, how do we shift that conversation and, and start to um, have a discussion that's not built on that foundation? Yeah. Um, wow. okay. So one of the things I saw a couple of weeks ago that I was not able to attend but want to um, catch the replay of if it exists is um, showing up for racial justice. Um, the organization co-hosted an event for parents to emphasize the importance of students learning the truth. Mm-hmm. Um through like letters to the editor and other like sort of culture ways that we can we can use the media to tell a different story and tell yeah. a different narrative. Um, so, you know, the approach there seems to be shifting the discussion back to focusing on the truth rather than letting the narrative be defined solely by this panic um, that, you know, again, is manufactured. Um, so I think I think that's what I want my homework to be. Yeah. And it's, it's very um Difficult because it's not like oh yeah I want to go read an article right <laughs> which because um, I don't I don't know I feel like this is an evolving thing that we have to figure out sort yeah. of um, collectively of like how do what do we how do we redefine this and shift these things um, and change them um, change the conversations I I love that and I think I I love it for a couple of reasons one it certainly is connected to what we talked about the, today in this episode but last week when we had when we were talking about the interview with Kianga Yamada Taylor, right? I think you started to bring some of this up too, yeah. right? Um, and so it's building upon what we talked about last week too. So uh, yeah, and I can appreciate this idea that there's no sort of easy blueprint, right? There's no sort of article out there about mm-hmm. this or or quick video we can watch. And so um, I appreciate that it's it's hard stuff, but it's a it's a it's a good question to consider and for us to 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 think about, right? And I and I appreciate this idea of reframing this to a place where we're learning more about this and and talking more about the actual truth yeah um, right and and pursuing sort of what is right and what is good and what is necessary for all of us so i appreciate that thanks for coming <laughs> to the table with homework today uh, yeah absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right my friend you're up next time what are you bringing to the table in our next episode I am bringing the book I mentioned last week uh, on last week's episode, How We Get Free, uh, edited by Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Um, so it is a collection of essays and interviews about the Combahee River Collective Statement. Um, and uh, it, so that was a really influential statement uh, in the trajectory of black feminism and broader cultural understanding of how systems of oppression work together to create new forms of oppression. Um, so they use... Um, uh, wow, I've blanked on the term, um, but they uh, coined a term uh, interlocking systems ah. of oppression um, is is the term I think that they created, um, which ultimately, right, like influenced folks like Kimberly Crenshaw yeah. to create intersectionality. Um, and so there, there's a lot of influence that they have had on sort of modern movements Um in, in their work from the seventies. Um, so the statement is in this book and then there are interviews with, um, some of the primary authors of that statement, as well as a couple of, uh, modern organizers who have also been influenced by, um, the statement. So it's a really great, 
um, read uh, in terms of like sort of looking at the history and then also seeing how that's playing out today and influencing today um, as we as we continue to to move toward a, a place of more justice and, and more um, liberation. That's awesome. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading it, cracking the book open via my Kindle. <laughs> uh, I think it should be a, a great read. So I'm Looking forward to it and looking forward to our conversation next time. Yes. All right. All right. So with that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what we're going to ask you to do here, but in case you forgot, please follow, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with the people in your life, follow us on social media, and sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we've got going on behind the scenes. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. And we'll talk to you next week.